Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 143. In this episode, we're talking about women behind the wall with Shadia Kunti. Shadia is a Palestinian Christian from Nazareth and has worked in peacebuilding and advocacy initiatives for 15 years in Israel and Palestine. She is the host of an amazing podcast called Women Behind the Wall, which features stories of women living in Israel and Palestine, and is currently pursuing a degree in interreligious and indigenous studies in Vancouver School of Theology in Canada. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd and myself, Dr. Brandon Herbert. So Stephanie, what did you think about our conversation with Shadia? I just found that conversation so energizing. I don't know about you, Brandon, but I mean, there's a wealth of wisdom that she brought to this conversation that is so needed in what is often uh, a re- very reactive conversation about the issues that come up when you're talking about Israel and Palestine. But what I really appreciated was some of the insights that she has about Indigenous theologies to do with land and how um, the kind of extractive dominance that a lot of Christian theology has been kind of wedded to, coupled with, unfortunately, um, can actually learn a lot from Indigenous um, minorities. Um, So that was one of the really interesting threads of our conversation. But also, I think I was really struck by the weight of of hopelessness that she's the space that she's in at the moment and that's really important for me because I think that when I'm exhausted by intractable in political situations I can just tap out Um, I can I can insulate myself by kind of apathy but when this is your day in day out this is your story you can't do that and so that was actually a challenge for me um, to do the hard work of actually leaning in and um and that actually requires of you to take hold of hope in a different way. I think, I think I'm inspired to actually try and use her podcast um, as a resource in my own communities as well. So awesome conversation. A privilege to speak with her. Yes. In this episode, we talk a lot about Shadia's podcast, Women Behind the Wall, which is a beautiful podcast, interviews a number of different women in different life situations in Israel and Palestine. And I'd really highly recommend you check it out wherever you get your podcasts and we'll be talking a lot about what what, what went into making uh, this podcast uh, in this episode along with as Stephanie said uh, indigenous theologies and, and other things and with that here's our conversation with Shadia Kuti. Well, thank you so much, Shadia, for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you today and looking forward to our conversation. Great. Uh, Well, why don't you just uh, start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to start a podcast? Sure. So um, um, I'm originally from born and raised from Nazareth. Um, And Nazareth is in the Galilee. um, And I'm a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship. And uh, really most of my adult life, I've moved to Jerusalem. That's where I uh, studied initially and started working, kind of getting getting more exposed to the Israeli-Palestinian context from a different geographical location. 
Um, and so I think um, my career as a peacemaker, trying to advocate for reconciliation in the church, in the context of Israel-Palestine, you know, you get familiar with the industry of peacemaking. Um, and I think um, this podcast is kind of an outcome of lessons learned and um, ways uh, I felt like I could elevate uh, certain voices that maybe are less uh, uh, less exposed in the Israeli-Palestinian context, especially in, in the framework of the church. Uh, if you can recall, like if you've heard about Palestine, usually it's men speaking about it, whether it's in the news or in the church. And so uh, me and uh, two other friends, we decided that why not create this podcast, which is a great means for uh, specific age group, English speaking audiences, that if they want an entry point about the context through storytelling, let's start that. So that's where the idea of the podcast started. And we were quite ambitious. We said, we wanna do this 10 months. You know, We set the deadline and we really worked uh, rigorously to get it done as an extracurriculum activity. And, you know, we didn't have any experience in editing. Uh, we just had the will. And, you know, you guys know how uh, challenging editing can be, but, you know, we tried to delegate the responsibilities so that uh, we also get creative uh, editing as well as kind of design our own. Each each one who does the their episodes can kind of have some uh, freedom to do it as, as they please. But the idea is to just let the speaker tell their story. That's why there's no conclusions, additions. We we just wanted them to speak for their own. And that's why um, the only inputs that we put in the in each episode is to give some kind of context. If they mention something that we can assume an average uh, English speaker doesn't know about the, the context, we kind of just give them a little like definition of what it is. And if they want more information, they can go to the website and read more about it. For example, um, what is the permit system? Uh, when someone says, I am I have Israeli ID or Palestinian ID or Jerusalem ID, and they kind of kind of depends on the listener, they can uh, get more familiarized with it. Well, thank you so much for that work. It's such a gift to people on the other side of the world who want to understand more about what, what it is to be on the ground and be living those experiences. Um, are there any particular threads when, when you kind of um, step back um, a bit and look at other are are threads or themes that go throughout all these stories that you could talk about? Yeah, I think initially, I mean, you know, we were thinking that we'll do, we'll start, right? When you start anything, you kind of start with your own network. And so, and anything to do with recordings or kind of taking taking it onto a public domain, um, it, you really, especially in Israel-Palestine, you depend on your relationships. And so our first circle of friends were Palestinian Christians. So most of the voices there, you will hear their perspective as uh, Palestinian, as women, and then as Christians. Uh, and, and that's kind of been the common intersectionality in the podcast. Uh, initially, we we're like, yeah, we can do another season and then expand the, the network. But I think, you know, things happened. Uh, we all kind of moved on in our lives as well. And, and that didn't take place. But um, yeah, I think uh, primarily it's how do you navigate li living your life in that context as a woman? And right, even if you look at um, like a feminist uh, lens of looking at things, um, we all believe that women experience things differently than men and uh, choosing when we chose our speakers, we tried to kind of um, 
expand the spectrum of women by age group, by their uh, marital status, by their um, um, just different experiences of life to kind of give as wide as possible of that uh, experience as, uh, as women who have to make choices, not just for them, sometimes for their families and so on. Yeah, you had a you had a big range uh, of of different women's experiences of you know the, the single kind of professional. Um, I think she was working at Bethlehem Bible College, if I remember. Uh, to you know, married and married with children, and um, yeah, all sorts of different experiences and with different living situations. I think there was one story where um, the husband and wife were living on other sides of the mm. of the border uh, yeah. or the or the or the wall, and they had you know he he couldn't. He couldn't stay with her um which is just mind-boggling that like that's a thing that people experience and i think if you don't live in that context it's probably really difficult to imagine that that you have that you'd have to uh to stay with your family you'd have to uh drive what was it 45 an hour uh to cross a different checkpoint and then stay for a few hours and then come back yeah i mean this is i think this is sarah's story episode five um uh and you know that that's the cross we call it cross cross border uh marriage because uh, uh one of them has a jerusalemite id and one of them has a palestinian id and he's uh and the husband can't with his palestinian id he can't just go into jerusalem which is considered in Isra under israeli authority and uh he's in uh, bethlehem area which is under palestinian authority so uh, because the mom wanted um, her kids to have uh, health coverage, uh, health coverage, which anyone with a Jerusalemite and an Israeli ID can get access to it, she tried her best so that she can live in in Jerusalem so that her kids can get that uh, same status as for as hers. And the story, I mean, I just recently listened to it for um, something I was doing, and it's just heart-wrenching. I mean, it's a short story, right? 19 minutes, but it's just her life is all about navigating, going to Jerusalem, taking the kids to school, uh, staying there, doing her stuff, and then um, being in touch with her husband, whether it's visiting him uh, every now and then to also, because she has like two homes that she has to take care of, as well as this whole process of just crossing uh, the checkpoint back and forth. And if you've been to Israel, Palestine, I mean, Jerusalem and Bethlehem are neighboring cities, but because of checkpoints and the restricted uh, entry points, a lot of the, her time is spent waiting in traffic or just crossing in and out. Um, and yeah, I, I remember uh, when I just listened to the story, I was like, wow, how can you do that? It's just so much pressure other than mm -hmm. having uh, just regular childbearing responsibilities you also have to always keep in touch with with all of that and of course in her story right the boundaries changed which automatically changed her status which affected her all of that work yeah. right like in the end uh, you can listen to it to see what, what's happening but in this case right it's not only costly in terms of time and effort it's also costly with money you can try to um, change your status or try to fight but you know, if you don't have the means, sometimes it's hard to, you just have to succumb to the consequences. And I think, yeah, I mean, all these stories, I mean, they're short stories, but I, I always feel like they're very, really heavy stories because the reality of the Palestinians is heavy. And many times, even when I'm uh, listening to it, it's just this like 
big um, pain that I, I feel uh, for each of these experiences. And uh, we tried to end it with like a note about what is your hope, right? What is your message to Israelis or to Jewish people? How do you see uh, hope in the context? Because it's a, it just reflects the reality of Palestinians who on average experience injustice in a, on a more frequent uh, experience than uh, Israeli Jews. Uh, and so they have to tackle with this. And I think a lot of us as, as Palestinians who are advocating for, for peace, we're not coming at it just from a theoretical perspective or theological perspective, but it's yeah. also our experience. This is our life. Like, how are we, you know, my whole, even coming here right now where I'm studying indigenous theology and interfaith studies, like I'm trying to answer the question, what is the hope for us as a people, yeah. um, as, as a people of the church? Because the right, there are these dissonances that uh, Palestinians have experienced, especially in the church in regards to uh, uh, our, our existence in, in a land that's interpreted theologically as someone else's, and we're kind of an obstacle to that. So how do you grapple with it? Um, and again, like st stories, reflect the reality and they also reflect macro issues uh, that are fundamental to uh, the context. And mm -hmm. I think this podcast, if I can kind of sum it up, I think if people have, you know, if you're not, you haven't been to Israel-Palestine um, and you need an entry point, well, this is a good place to start. It just kind of gives you an idea through stories, what's happening there, right? Everyone you ask is like, what's happening? It's too complicated, don't understand. Um, so I think, you know, that's a way to simplify it by listening to a story and kind of uh, hoping that it gives you this entry point to kind of engage more with it. There's so much resources about Israel-Palestine, sometimes you don't know where to start. Um, and so, for example, uh, I've used this podcast as a resource for, uh, uh, for church groups. So we, you know, like a book, book club. So we listen to an episode and then we talk about it. And that opens up kind of opportunities whether we want to expand on a specific topic, um, you know, and so on and so on. Yeah, I think probably one of the most frustrating things in talking about Israel-Palestine is that for so many people, it's just a, an issue to be solved. And there's no attention paid to the real people on the ground. And especially within kind of Christian circles, it's, you know, do you support Israel uh, because of, you know, kind of some Zionistic tendencies or you know like this is god's chosen people etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's like well here look at this bible verse you know look at this section look at this theology and it's like yeah but look at the people on the ground mm. and see how they're actually being affected by this theology and how they have historically been affected by it and i think that's probably a, a, your podcast is so powerful because it it just sidesteps all those uh theological conversations not because you're not interested you, you are deeply invested and interested in these conversations but you but you understand that the the real power is in the story of the individual yeah and how their community is being affected and i think that's that's that that's wonderful um if, if obviously there's no favorites to be played in your podcast uh if you wanted to highlight maybe one other episode that our listeners should should um should look at what, what would that be yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess it's with personal preference also where you are, right? Like you said, we have a grandmother speaking about her experience of having grandchildren and kids outside of the country, uh, which is the Loris. Um, 
There's also a yoga instructor who tries to use yoga, right, as a way to help the body relieve the trauma, um, uh, which is, um, I don't recall the episode number, but my favorite ones, I think then that resonates also where I was when we recorded episode three, Amira's story, who's a young adult, uh, who um, is kind of talks about her experience, family's experience of the siege of Bethlehem, just being under Israeli military occupation and just kind of brings up her her life stories, like childhood stories uh, resonated with with uh, not, not similar, but something that uh, uh, I, I identified with. But then she starts working in the church context and all of a sudden realizes that the Bible is used as a weapon against her, against her existence, right? And just her cry of like, you know, like something like, if you want to uh, um, hate me or if you don't uh, want Palestinians to have their own state fine but don't use the Bible against us kind of um, so I resonate with kind of that um, um, where she's coming from because of my own experience as well uh, speaking about even reconciliation in the church and how much that was even not favored among many and I think the story that I, I'm, I most emotionally was moved by um, is the story of Hanan's in episode eight who was he who converted from uh, who was Muslim and then became a born again believer, right? She's obviously the wording indicates what uh, she became evangelical, and just her personal uh, story of taking that step and all that the all the obstacles she had to go through with her family and even being disconnected from her family, right? Because faith in the Middle Eastern context is not just the individual preference; it's it's your identity, it's your it's your it's your uh, social security. And then she moves uh, from somewhere in the Galilee to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden she meets Christian Zionists who are praying against the Palestinians and who have this very militaristic view of like this is the Jewish land. And she was just shocked. She she was like I, she couldn't grapple with it, and that just moved me. And I was like the price that individuals pay to become Christian uh, just to go to a you know, the shock of going into a community that's rejecting their their being simply because of their background, ethnicity, right? Not even something that anyone can control uh, at this point. But uh, that was that was uh, quite a strong uh, story uh, for me listening to it. And every time I listen to it, I get the sh some chills just because it was so strong. Yeah, wow. Um, something I'd be interested in hearing your perspectives on are around what it's like for your your who you are your identity to be so politicized to extent that you can't live your life in the day-to-day -day without feeling this weight and it being in the foreground in your face day in day out in a really heavy way and and in the context of well you know the scriptures really speak to that you know in Galatians you know there's neither Jew nor Gentile say nor free and that being a liberating impulse but that um how how that works in the context of um you know people who say you know we look at identity politics and say no that's just woke nonsense um how do you navigate this this space between those who criticize oh, this is dismissing it as identity politics, when on the day-to-day -day, your identity is being politicised um, in a way that that causes violence to you. Can, mm. you. 
Can you speak to what it's like for that in terms of as a disciple, what that's like? Yeah. I can try. I, and I think it's, it's still part of, right, deconstructing, you know, we spend our adulthood trying to figure out what happened in, in our childhood and, and how things formed us. And I think um, this this is an, a question that's existential every time, you know, it's kind of changes and it's fluid as, as you kind of grow and hopefully learn, learn more to cope with these um, uh, contradictions. And I think, um, so my, my upbringing was evangelical Baptist uh, of all things. And I think in, in Baptist evangelical theology, theology, I think two things that started kind of showing these contradictions um, and this is my way of trying to under, understand how to deal with them. Uh, because I remember uh, when I started working in peace building, I went to a church in Europe, I don't remember where, and you know, you say, hello, my name is Shadia and I'm a Palestinian. And one of the audience stood up and says, there's no such thing as Palestine, right? Like it was so like strong. And I think it's been a while Thanks. since that happened, but it's it's this like being rejected by just saying who you are. Or if I say, hi, my name is Shadia, I'm a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship. And I've had Israeli friends who come and say, why are you, um, um, this is insulting because you are uh, uh, denying our connection to the land, right? So you always have to explain yourself, like, what does it mean? What is a Palestinian? Or what does it mean to be a Palestinian with Israeli, with Israeli ID, right? So you're constantly in this space where you are explaining uh, yourself. And, and I think theologically, faith-wise, um, Growing up evangelical, I think there's this binary view of material versus spiritual, right? Like we're supposed to consider ourselves alien in this, aliens in this world mm. and everything is uh, coming to an end. And the only important thing, right, is your life in heaven is this eschatology. Identity in Christ is the only thing that matters. <laughs> exactly, right? So it's all this like, this all is okay. You know, like it's all temporary. But on the other hand, when it comes to Israel and the, the establishment of the state of Israel, there's this exceptional exceptional theology that actually, no, wait, the material land uh, and who lives in this land is actually important. And so that's like the first, you know, because it's part of the yeah. fulfillment of a spiritual uh, realm, if you want to call it. And so all of a sudden you're like, wait, so I'm not supposed to care about this land, but now I am. So what's happening here? And many yeah. people don't don't necessarily see the contradiction. They'll call it exceptionalism, or right, this is uh, uh, exception. And I think starts with questioning this binary view, right? Like between the material uh, or earth and spirituality, um, and what this eschatology, right, and times theology, uh, because if we're all doomed and gonna go to heaven, like what is our role then as Christians to start with here? Uh, are we just waiting, you know? Um, and so you have the kingdom of God theology where, right, we are, um, we still believe that second coming will happen at some day, but our, our role here as God's agents, as, as um, God's ambassadors is to uh, uh, to try to reconcile, to, uh, to get the reconciliation, right? The horizontal with the vertical. So we'll do our best to be at peace with one another. And that is not only spiritually, that should be also materially and in any aspect and I think mm. he, I've seen it more and more come to terms and I think that criticism of this type of eschatology is with eco-theology today yeah right yeah. like yeah. if you look at 
one of the problems of our ecological crisis today is because of this uh, interpretation of the word dominance over creation, yeah. right? Man, anthropocentric dominance over a non-creation. Um, and interesting, there's a book about, um, uh, I think I have it here. It's called Political Theology of the Earth, where Catherine mm -hmm. Keller, she's a, a famous author on ecotheology, shows how there is a correlation between the American evangelical constituency that they align with Trump administration because they have the same view about the creation that like it's fine it's temporary it's fine it doesn't matter what we do with it anyway because we're going to heaven right this assumption that whatever we are doing now and how we're treating earth at some point it will change because we'll go and go to this new paradise as if our behavior is yeah. gonna like change automatically so again like it's these yeah. questions about challenging and, and reconsidering um, um, certain uh, lenses that kind of have been given to us as, as kids maybe or in the church and we have to kind of question it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think I think it's right about the irony is that the, the, the same people who are, you know, talking all about the eternal realm uh, and, and eternity and, and heaven and whatnot um, are also people most likely not to really care a whole lot about eco theology, care about climate change, care about uh, the earth, except when it comes to the smallest mm. sliver of land in the Middle East. <laughs> um, and then they really care about the land. Totally. And it's really interesting, like that's what James Mumford talks about when he says like in, in the bundling of our particular positions on political or theological things, it's not necessarily a through line. Like we don't have like... Um, um, coherence between the views that we kind of cluster to ourselves, which is really, it's helpful to understand the human element of that. Yeah. But Shadia, something I wanted to ask you was about, so um, I've spent a bit of time thinking and learning from Indigenous leaders in Australia about um, how they understand their relationship to the land um, in the context of um, a, a colonial history where the Bible was weaponized against them. Um, and a lot of their Dreamtime um, storytelling was um, um, deemed to be, you know, of the devil um, and kind of um, pagan, etc. And a lot of a lot of the Christian um, Indigenous leaders that I've come um, to um, to learn from, kind of sharing with me this journey of how they how they um, reintegrate. Um, their own uh, Indigenous spirituality and particularly the connection to land. And I'm just so, I'd love to hear from you, given what you're studying at the moment about um, Indigenous theology, um, how, how, because it just seems that over the pattern across the world is that um, the relationship to land is so much healthier in a lot of these traditional um, Indigenous communities. Uh, there's much more, um, like, attunement, attentiveness, um, and, and a pattern of stewardship, which is would, would have served us much better, um, you know, had, had we paid attention to that. Um, what, what are the kinds of things that when you're thinking about Indigenous theologies of land and your experience of like the weaponization, politicization of land in the place that you grew up, mm. what are the things that you've been thinking about? This is a very relevant question to my uh, uh, writing thesis period right now. And actually, yeah, Australian, I read a really inspiring book on uh, Australian context and Indigenous peoples by, uh, I think his name is Chris 
button, um, finding Jesus or following Jesus in invaded space. I loved, I mean, I love the, the book because I mean, he says, you know, it's, it's looking at the way that the Bible was weaponized in, in Australia, but also saying, you know, um, as a settler, it starts with wrestling with the history, wrestling with the context and what has been done. In, uh, and, and I've benefited from that system, right? And I think indigenous theology everywhere, uh, the same as Palestinian theology and, and uh, black theology, feminist theology, they basically critique, right, the dominant theology. They're coming to say, uh, you're missing a lens and it's usually, it criticizes, but at the same time, it's also offering an alternative. And I think, you're you're on you're correct about the whole connection to land and and this is one of the reasons I've come here to kind of uh, just be in a learning environment on indigenous theology Canadian indigenous theology I think it's um, because usually um, our theology is critiquing the dominant theology and very very few times you'll see conversations among other indigenous theologies so I was I'm trying to kind of see okay, I, I, I think there's a lot of liter literature written about Christian Zionism uh, in the context in the Palestinian, but very few conversations between let's say Palestinian theology and indigenous or black theology and so on. And I think it's growing. Um, and I think we're learning from non-Christian solidarity movements that they are working more together. Um, and I think, yeah, and even if you look at the, like now I'm trying to see what what is theology of land in, in these contexts? And it's actually a theology that's developed mostly from indigenous peoples. It's not something that's kind of dominant Western theology developed. Uh, actually, there's a different perspective of place in a Western theology, um, but mostly it adheres to the ways of being, right? Like how things were before a colonization happening, but it's so far, most of the paradigms that this has been talked about is in the settler colonial paradigm. I'm still kind of in the research, but you know, looking at it where from a colonization or empire, Christian empire perspective, land was seen as a resource, right? We wanna utilize it to the best, right? And this was kind of the view of even missionaries, even coming to Israel, Palestine, before the establishment of the state of Israel, they looked at the land and said, ah, oh, the people here, right, in a very orientalist view that they haven't utilized the potential of this land, but the European Zionists will come and they will help kind of bring it to its potential, like making, uh, creating this milk and honey land, right? But this comes from this idea that land is a resource and we're here to uh, make use of it as opposed to the indigenous way of life was this cohabitation with the land. Um, it's not about, uh, reaching the land to its potential, but it's about this interrelationship with the land. Um, and even in Canadian indigenous context, uh, and it's a concept I'm still kind of learning about because that's not my uh, way of, of being, is that the land is a relative. It's a, it's in the same, you know, the, that there's this relationship of family to the land as opposed yeah. to this hierarchy like humans and then everything else, non-human non creation. Um, but you can see these elements of cohabitation with the land in Palestine, in Palestine or among Palestinians in the way they talk about creation, whether it's in poetry, whether it's in the way of life, right? We always go back to the point where things changed, which was 1948, the Nakba. So if you look at a lot of the writing before that, and actually a lot of the, these uh, even symbols of Palestinian, what, what it means to be Palestinian, whether it's embroidery, 
certain foods, they've kind of become more associated with the political movement, but these are all points that relate to a connection with the land, right? The olive tree is a symbol of Palestinians or the um, kufiyi, right? The scarf, but that was the scarf that farmers were wearing to protect them from the sun. And in many ways, it's it's the peasants, it's the uh, rural life that's kind of dominated Palestinian culture after 48. But that kind of because it goes back to that time and place where we were living in connection to the land. So I think, right, and if you look at theology discourse, we're still pretty much, uh, a lot of the Palestinian writing is still condensed in critiquing Western theology of interpretation. So a lot of the books that you will find, they are kind of offering an alternative interpretation of the theology of the promised land or the covenant, which is still, I mean, I think it did a lot uh, uh, to elevate the voices of Palestinian Christians and their experience. But I, I think as someone who's kind of uh, trying to explore that, I think there's also a lot to explore, explore of what it is to be a Palestinian Christian and what is our connection to the land using kind of um, these ways of life that maybe are not perceived um, academic, academically, right? <clears throat> For example, the way we pass history uh, and, you know, Palestinians tell stories in many ways like other indigenous peoples because that's the way we transfer information. We keep our ancestral knowledge kind of an oral tradition, uh, which is not very academic, right? But that's still kind of uh, still the foundation of how we pass on information. Um, and my way, like if you look at embroidery, for example, embroidery was this unspoken uh, matriarchal uh, uh, transferring of ancestral knowledge, right? What you, what, how you do it, but also the symbols, because each symbol represents something from your environment, from your relationship to the land. Um, and each one is, you know, women are telling their stories through their embroidery which is common in also other indigenous contexts. But if you look at Palestinian uh, context, for example, you can find a lot of, of these um, examples of a relationship to land. Within um, the Old Testament, you know, the, the idea of land is, is intimately tied with rest and the concept of rest and Sabbath. Um, and, you know, I think it, I find it interesting that you know, if we are to tie these two concepts together, well, it seems that literally no one is resting quite peacefully in the land at the moment, but especially Palestinians. Um, I wondered if there is a similar kind of um, interconnectedness between land and uh, and rest within uh, in, the, in the indigenous uh, theologies that you've studied. Uh, I'm trying to think because right, rest and Sabbath, it's very Judeo-Christian and a lot of the indigenous uh, uh, spiritualities kind of come out of different different um um spirituality i haven't heard it come as often except in right ecotheology like uh, with norman Worsbo's book on the the sabbath and the, the importance of the sabbath as resting the land um but, but yeah i haven't i can't think of other um, articles or readings that i've come across where they emphasize that rest uh, aspect of it mm. the concept of rest and Sabbath might not be expressed in that way. But um, like, for example, in because there's such an attunement to the rhythms of mm. the land, like I'm just thinking the thing that came to mind for me as you're asking that question, Brandon, um, was um, like, like, like seasons of fallow and like, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like 
this is the this is the time to burn the, the land this is the time to let it heal this is the time to and so there yeah. is this like this, this like rhythm and this is why like um there was this book um that um I was in a reading group called Rainbow Spirit Theology um and it was really interesting awesome. for me. it was it was it was like so the rainbow the rainbow spirit was like the rainbow serpent which a lot of indigenous people in Australia thought thought as the creator spirit Mm. And so when when um, when um, the colonizers came, they saw the snake as the snake from the garden, and so that's obviously Satan. Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> but so reclaiming that spirituality for them is partly um, they're trying to integrate as Christians um, learnings from the South, which is our traditional histories, um, you know from the land basically is there anything that we can learn from the north being like bible scholars and you know all the church history but then our our guides guiding um kind of influence is from the east which is the gospel and the west is like the possibilities of of a more integrated spirituality around that um but in in this book it talks about um that that like attentiveness to land and like the rhythms and like there being this um yeah responsiveness to the land as, as you're saying like kind of like a, as a person as a character um which is kind of similar to the canadian um approach to the land that you were just describing i think yeah i mean come to think of it maybe the concept of time right and and, and, and what i've come across uh, in, in indigenous studies is different than right our understanding of time like yeah. that's right and then yes. so then time in, in indigenous context is cyclical like it's whole yeah. like a circle right it's circle that's why every like uh the, in a lot of the ceremonies it's this circle shape because it's um uh it's part of the sacredness the same in right christianity the ring is round and um the eternity is is round um and in connection to what i've seen it come to play is that indigenous peoples were attentive to this to time in terms of the seasons right when seasons change that's their that's their that's the time uh telling um and when it comes so they don't they understand time differently than uh our kind of right greenwich uh setting the time and and all of that um and in terms of place, um, if you ask an indigenous Christian here, like, tell us about your faith, uh, they will most likely list names of places where they've had a spiritual encounter, for example, so so interesting. A, river, a mountain, because it's so connected to the land. Whereas in, you know, in, in, um, in my evangelical upbringing, you kind of tell, you kind of tell a co the concepts like the incarnation salvation um a resurrection the cross so it's more conceptual because again we're influenced more by reason right and kind of uh the mind like this binary view right like what do you yeah. think rather than what, what you think of where you are yeah. Yeah. this embodied kind of theology in many ways that we don't necessarily put a lot of emphasis on our bodies but more on our thoughts um and so i've seen that when you talk about place, even if you look at, you know, if you if you're new to 
uh, you go to Vancouver and you look up like what is Vancouver the the starting point is this linear timeline of like who established it and what happened here or this building right even a church what happened what about this church right when it was established something happened so the whole idea of encountering uh god encountering creator creator we've confined it into this kind of church building or a space where either we say here's where you meet god here's where you meet with the divine where's for the indigenous person it's everywhere it's it's everywhere it can be in a river it can be on the mountain it can be under this or that tree um so in that sense that's the different kind of understanding of of place uh from an, an indigenous way i mean in in the context of Israel, Palestine, right? I mean, we our churches mostly are where things actually happen in the Bible. Or at least there's two versions of where it happened: the, the, yeah. the Eastern and the Western uh, uh, interpretation of, let's say, in my in my hometown, Nazareth. There's two places where the angel Gabriel actually appeared to Mary because in the, if you read the text, it doesn't say where she was. So there's two churches that says it happened here. Um, and so we've become the church has become the place where we commemorate and we say something sacred happened here between god and humanity right so it's a different hmm. ways of, of looking at it. and I'm, I'm yes we do believe that the holy spirit is still with us and miracles still happen but, but it's in a different way uh that an indigenous experience a spiritual experience will be where it can happen anywhere it's more related to their their land and it's very private no one will tell you they don't have uh, places where they say this happened here because it's a personal private kind of experience um, and so the idea of rest, I think it would come probably with a seasonal change, but I haven't come across it in a very more mm. strong yeah. way. Yeah, I don't know that uh, those are, that's very helpful. I, I was thinking um, precisely about with the concept of rest, we understand the land is not a resource to be utilized, yeah. but something to be you know, enjoyed and celebrated. And so we, we let the land life follow because we, we don't need to make the most amount of money. We don't need to, uh, yeah. we, we, we let the, the, the sojourner and the widower, um, you know, you know, uh, get the edges of our, our crops because we don't need to make the most amount of money because the land is something to be, to be shared. And all of these resources are God's, Right um all things belong to you and of your own do we give you right as the uh anglican prayer goes um and so it, you know i i think i i'm seeing a lot of connections between just that one's view of the land will ultimately change how you live on it um and how you treat it as we can see uh in the bad sense uh in our world today <laughs> um, yeah uh, no, absolutely yeah right yeah no that's, that's true yeah so, so how has, you know, all of your, your study, obviously you're still studying. So there's, 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 uh, your, your knowledge is just, is limitless at this point, um, and the potential for it. Um, uh, but if you could just, you know, give us a sneak peek, uh, what would you say is, you know, you know, the, sum of your studies, how has that changed or affected your understanding of your Palestinian experience? Hmm. Yeah. I think it's made me more attentive to, and more critical of certain presumptions in my in my theological upbringing that we need to question um and for example um i think 
also you'll see this in Naim Ati, who is the liberation theology, Palestinian liberation theologist and interpretation, and Robert Warrior, who's an, an, I think American, right? In the question of the land, right? When they interpret the Exodus story. And so the Exodus story, right? We're always focusing on the narrative that the Israelites were enslaved and they were, God uh, helped them, um, uh, liberated them from, um, from slavery. But I think Naim Ati and Robert Warrior's perspective they bring attention to if you if you take if you are sympathizing or if you put yourself in the Israelite perspective you're not only you're missing two main points one that in the story uh, there's the issue of conquest of Canaan exactly yeah uh, that you're basically saying God is a conqueror and um, and you have to grapple like as indigenous people they have to grapple what does that mean because the Canaanites were annihilated, right, in in uh, the Old Testament. Yeah. And so, what about the rights of indigenous people in our context today, right? So, kind of start yeah. saying, mm -hmm. I think evangelical again. I'm I'm in my upbringing because we always viewed Jesus, our Christology, and our understanding of God. He's the conqueror, victorious, right? We're gonna mm. be delivered. But what does that mean in a context where when you're suffering injustice, um, and and what does that look like? And maybe that's not the only reading to the bible um and so for me it's kind of opened my eyes for different ways of seeing it and also i think be attentive uh, any of the palestinian writings we're not necessarily critiquing israel's right to exist or the connection of the jewish people to the land a lot of the writing is about sharing the land and i, I genuinely believe that there's room to share the land there's just no willingness and mm. The idea here, what we're trying to do is we're also taking maybe uh, doing some damage control that theology has played a role in in the current situation we're in. Um, and so I think that knowledge, I think, is also putting things in perspective for me. It's one like, again, I I don't think Palestinian Israeli context is the only context where there's injustice there's a lot more and the more i'm learning about the indigenous context the more i realize like there's a lot of similarities here and i think that is a source of hope for me there's a lot there to to learn from and to kind of um have that exchange of, of learning experiences because i think mostly i'm i'm a bit feeling a lot of hopelessness in the context especially things situation is regressing and i don't see um, and it's my, my, my own kind of spiritual battle is seeing hope uh, in the context. And I think it's in, uh, it's happening here in, in the margins where I'm at, because um, I don't know, there's something about learning about other contexts that also gives you a lot of power. Um, and I think reading the Bible then and, and looking at it as not just something that we are the protagonists, but maybe seeing it from different perspectives and what implications of our interpretation is on actual people who live uh elsewhere um and here so yeah i think that these are some ways that i can i can see that this knowledge is being very helpful um for my own personal growth but also uh giving me that global view of where things are where things are at shania um you mentioned before that you've been in, been involved with um, peacemaking and reconciliation work, um, which I'm in in awe of. I think that, that would be really hard, um, hard work. Um, given um, 
you know, we see that in the New Testament, particularly, a lot of it is written in the context of, you know, an oppressed minority. What are, are there any like tools um, that you glean from um, the scriptures and, and your faith and, um, you know, your walk with a God who says that he has solidarity with, with those people? What, how does that shape the way that you do that kind of hard work, the, the way that you, you, know, you resist and you confront oppression and you call it out, but how, how does it shape the way, like what are some of the handholds that, um, that you've adopted as you try and do that work and not, like I can imagine my, my struggle if I'd been in your situation would be resentment and just, um, just, frustration like that frustration would cannibalize me um so are there is there any any wisdom that you can share with us um particularly given like you know i'm coming from the west and a lot of us are beneficiaries of that oppression in, in ways that um i can't even begin to unpick um so i'd be grateful for any wisdom you could share yeah i um, i mean i think when i when i at some point when i was in jerusalem um and i would walk into like some of the more poshy neighborhoods you know in, in in the city especially for that are tailored more for tourists right being there you're reminded that all of this beauty is built on the expense of someone who is um just 10 kilometers away who can't access who's never been to jerusalem right like this realization that it's you're seeing things in different layers and the question is, how do you how do you grapple with it? And I think the call to be a peacemaker, I think even at, at a young age, when I um, participated myself in a, in a trip and I didn't know even there were Jews who believe in Jesus, right? Messianic Jews. And just when I was in that proximity uh, to and I made friends with Messianic Jews, and then we read the Bible together, right? And the kind of the Ephesians 2, that God broke the barrier and they made the two one. Like it just clicked for me. I was like, oh yeah, we're bridge builders, right? Like if we can get it together and if we can be peacemakers, we can show how Jews and, and uh, Palestinians can live together, then that's a great witness, right? I mean, in some ways I still believe it, but in other ways it's very naive realistically because I think there's a lot of Messianic Jewish theology that's in, in that's entrenched into um, the, uh, it's, it's connected with the modern state of Israel. And a lot of it is so engraved that, if you challenge that, it's many times, um, it, you know, there's a big challenge there that it, it, you can't deal with it. And many people just withdraw from peacemaking, right? Because in the end, it, it expects that if you want to be a peacemaker, you have to be ready to take action and make the change. And I think that's the big uh, challenge for uh, uh, those who are in the, in the powerful uh, side of the imbalance of power. That's why I think it, for many Israelis, it's not just to be involved in a march and say, yes, we want peace. I mean, that's going to cost something because, like you said, like there's some there's a there's a system that's making one side benefit over the other. Um, and so I think um, reading reading the Bible, um, like I just recently had the course on uh, early church fathers and I was reading uh, Eusebius's writing. Right. And Eusebius was appointed kind of he was the first official uh, under Constantine. And he kind of, the way he understood it is he thought that um, Constantine became becoming Christian. This is a fulfillment of God's reign over the over right world. This is the purpose of, uh, a, this is the purpose of uh, what Jesus was preaching, right? And so I think up until the end of the Christian empire, as we call it, right? That's, 
then we have a change in the shift and saying, oh, wait, maybe we got it wrong. Maybe it's not about Christian Christianity being in power. Let's re-examine the scripture again. And then so you'll see this right increase into like reading into that. Actually, Jesus was always talking to the people on the margins, the poor, the oppressed, uh, the outcast. And it was never about uh, he wasn't really very rarely speaking positively to anyone within power, uh, both religious and, and political leaders. And so I think it's just the way of us reading scripture in the sense that uh, we're constantly asking the question, who is uh, uh, who is not in this conversation? Who's not in our church and why? And, and you know, uh, we're not only asked to uh, pray for the poor, we're supposed to be, you know, emerged with them. And I think that seems the same thing with the oppressed. Um, and, and I think it just starts with like, what you read, what you're, what's impacting your, your theological reading. And, and I'd say, you know, um, uh, explore uh, so many, there's so many writings about from a, a marginalized theology or people on the margins that are writing about different interpretations of the same text and scriptures that just opens our eyes to things that we've not seen before. Um, and I think still, even now, like as a Palestinian, right, this is, it's, I'm not just doing it because I want to. And I think peacemaking is the least, if you, you know, if you want to make money or if you want to be famous, don't do peacemaking, right? Like it's no one, uh, everyone, my friends were like, why were you doing this? Like, what's the point? Like peace is never going to happen or like uh, you're looked down upon. But if it's just something you're passionate about and you think, what other choice do I have other than elevate the voices of my voice and my people's voices uh again it's not and i and again is a rejection of this binary view of of the sum zero view of the of the conflict it's not either or it's that's not helpful at all don't be too palestinian if you're in the context and those be too israeli because that's adding more fire to the already burning situation but the question is how can we think in, in a different way? There's a th third alternative to that. And it's the answer I think is in our scripture. It's just, we just have to be attuned to that. Um, yeah, and I think always ask yourself, is this worth the consequences? Whatever mm -hmm. I do, is it worth what I believe in? And if the answer is yes, go for it. Even though it's scary, if it's uncomfortable, you're not sure about it. Um, I, I think um, our faith, needs to take action and without that we are misrepresenting our, our savior we're misrepresenting mm -hmm. our faith yeah that's great i mean if you really wanted to make money i think there's more money in war than there is in peace oh. <laughs> unfortunately oh, absolutely yeah so shadia you are the woman behind the woman behind the wall if you were being interviewed on on this podcast what what story would you tell? I would tell my personal story of just growing up in Nazareth um, in, a, in a small church where um, you've learned a lot about God's love and how, you know, as a, as a individuals, God loves us so much that he gave his one and only son to us. But then the minute you kind of become an adult or teenager, you kind of pick up that there's something not right where I'm living, right? There seems to be a conflict, two people, right? These experiences where you sudden, when you realize all of a sudden, oh, I'm not supposed to speak Arabic in this here, or I'm not supposed to be, right? So this kind of journey of 
uh, experiencing um, a reality of injustice um, and how to navigate, whether it's experiences of confrontation with the army or experiences in the family setting, right? I can tell a lot of stories about that. And then when you um, realize that um, there are enemy enemies, there's a real thing. It's not really a, just a, something you read about. And then how do you then apply loving your enemy in your context? And I would just kind of tell my journey of uh, what that what is that what that's like. Um, but as, as well, I think in in a way like um, I kind of also share my experiences as a woman working in peace building and in the church, realizing some of the um, imbalances of power you experience, whether it's uh, in the peacemaking industry, right? There's, it's still uh, how come a lot of the executive directors are male and all of the workers, the hard workers are women. Um, a, how come I couldn't be a leader in, in my church just because I'm a woman, right? And someone my age group becomes an elder, but I'm not and why it's a gender issue. So you have multiple layers of these um, uh, subtleties that you only, you know, the more you study reconciliation and you take it, you know, take it seriously, you realize that it's not just in the macro conflict is between Israelis and Palestinians. There's also uh, in the Palestinian context some. So I can share kind of more of, of unpacking of these um, multi-layers of just experiences of being marginalized. Um, and I would probably talk more about hopefully writing more, right? Like this is also another deficiency or uh, something that needs to be worked on is that more Palestinian women writing, uh, especially theology. I think right now there's one or two books by Palestinian Christian women. And, but again, I mean, it's, it's a system. It's then you're kind of trying to tackle the theological structure of writing books and who cites who, right? In the, and beautiful book by invisible women right where she says like it citing is also a structure that maintains the kind of patriarchy because who you cite in your articles or you kind of generate this attention to and many times it's mostly men and not women so it, it's just kind of breaking through a lot of these um uh, sectors or these realms it just takes time and you just need to keep pushing and supporting um each other and i think a great tool to that is to advocate for others always someone's asking you who did you recommend you know for this or for that like try to include be as inclusive as you want uh, just to be attentive to the already like existing bias structure that we live in and whatever we are right this is not just uh i'm sure it's not just in israel palestine it's elsewhere um yeah so i might kind of say yeah I really you know if you can help me write a book you know i don't know sh tell me how or uh, guide me to it because that's a whole industry I'm not familiar with, but I do would like at some point, let's say, to um, put things in writing. Oh, well, we I've really appreciated um, all of your thoughts and your wisdoms and your experience. Uh, just a, a final question to kind of leave us off with is, you know, if you could, could you describe the future that you are hoping and praying for? Well, this is kind of one of the hardest questions you can ask, right? Um, and I, you know, my prayer is, I hope that in my lifetime, we will see a context where Palestinians and Israelis are living together um, in the land and ending violence as a means to solve issues. Um, but my hope, I mean, that's, that's really, I have a, a big question, a big kind of challenge with this question. And many times I deflect it and I'll say, what's your hope for me? 
what's your hope for the Palestinians, right? Because I'm the person suffering, I'm, an, I'm, I'm the person who's going through injustice, what hope do you, can you give me? But it is also a means of deflecting is I'm really, uh, hope is, uh, it's on it's a it's on in demand commodity for me right like you need it because the, every time you open the news you read it's another it's more deaths it's more um slowly whether it's economically legally socially like palestinians are being um uh, further um oppressed so and again and i'm saying it as someone who's a citizen of israel so i can vote i have access freedom of movement so my situation and maybe compared to others is uh, a bit easier but still living with that um living being perceived as a inside enemy is also not pleasant and not easy to live with um and i think for many people in my in my situation the last events in may were quite were eye-opening for many Palestinians who lived in Israel because they realized if they haven't already that they are being treated just like any other Palestinian. It doesn't matter what citizenship you have. Um, and it's a really hard reality to grasp with, um, especially if you have kids and you want them to, you want to secure the best quality of life for them. So, I mean, again, I'm just processing like my inability to say what's my hope. Um, and I think that's where my faith comes in because that's the only place where I can see hope uh, is that um, clinging on to God's promise um, that um, peace will come and um, there is the, the, the resurrection will come. And because of our faith as Christians, we have the ability to imagine what is not here yet. And we have the tools to imagine a different reality than the one we're experiencing right now. And I think that's the biggest hope I have. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much.